Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I grew up in the town that I now represent in Parliament. I went to the local school. I wouldn't be standing here without the opportunities that I received there. And I want the best of chances for everyone. That is my mission, that if we can fulfill the potential and realize the talents of all our people, then I am absolutely sure that Britain can be the great global success story of this century. It's 2006, in the wake of a wave of disastrous local elections and chafing against his decision to support Israel's bombing campaign in Lebanon, Labour MPs revolt against Tony Blair. As a result, the party's only three-time election winner agrees to stand down the following year. In the resulting leadership contest, there is only one candidate, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown. Brown brings new faces into the cabinet and emphasises his stylistic breach with Blair but the policy changes are limited to scrapping super casinos. The new government is soon hit by a slew of crises. Foot in mouth, flooding, a full terrorist attack. Gordon Brown's popularity soars as voters respond positively to his handling of events. Rumours mount that Labour may go to the country for an early election. But after allowing speculation to build during Labour Party conference in 2007, Brown very publicly changes his mind at the last minute. In the days that follow, first Brown's opinion poll ratings tumble, then the country is plunged into full-on financial crisis. Brown emerges as a crucial figure in building international consensus on the best way to tackle the crisis. But it's not enough. In 2010, Labour go down to their worst election defeat since 1983, and Brown is out of office after less than three years as Prime Minister. I'm Stephen Bush. And I'm John Elledge. Welcome to Prime Ministerial. I think I'm going to struggle to be objective on this one because I really like Gordon Brown. I, I think he's going to get a much better write-up in the history books than he gets at the moment. I think he's incredibly underrated. I realised with a jolt when we were preparing for this, Gordon Brown is the person who was Labour leader for the longest stint of time in the time I was a member of the Labour Party. And yeah, it was its leader in the only election in which I was a activist rather than a observer. And so it's odd because my overwhelming first memories of Gordon Brown are a series of truly awful elections to be knocking on doors for anyone. 
2009 European elections in the wake of expenses, in the wake of everything else. An election so bad that I and a friend of mine had a game where the only way to make it bearable was to guess not whether or not someone would be supporting Labour because there were so few Labour supporters to be found. That made it too easy because you just went no. But to guess A, who they would be supporting instead and what they would say they disliked about the Labour government. But it was also an oddly exciting time. It felt like the world was against you. We had a very tough battle to hold that particular seat, which we in fact did. And although there were aspects of his political style I didn't agree with, I remember a really awkward moment after the European elections. Throughout most of the night when we were watching results coming in, the Labour Party was behind the Liberal Democrats. They didn't take third until late on, a very bad set of elections in the counties and locally. His councillor says to us in a hushed voice, James Pennell has resigned saying that Gordon Brown needs to go if he's going to win an election. And I suppose it was the beginning of the realisation that I was not cut out for being a party member of any political party because I am, I kind of said, oh, thank God for that. And suddenly realised I had hugely misjudged the mood of the audience because although I do think it's very hard to claim that someone else would have been able to exert the leadership he did on the financial crisis, it is equally hard to defend his decision to lead the party into an election where it had been made clear he could not win. And I think although his record as Prime Minister, you know, child poverty still falling throughout the crash, the handling in many ways of the financial crisis exemplary, looking back, the thing I find, and this probably is where I'm letting my position as a journalist covering the modern Labour Party, the aggressive and, you know, negative briefing conducted by both sides of the new Labour civil war over, let's face it, the Euro and Foundation hospitals, is very hard to defend. And that's why I actually think, if anything, history will probably not be that kind to him personally, because a large chunk of the the reckoning will be, well, what was all of this civil war for? Okay, so so what I take from that is that you're also going to struggle to be objective about this because it's too wrapped up with your own personal political journey. But also, I do think it's a sort of a telling point that these days the word Blairite is used to mean all flavours of opinion from that side of the party because there weren't that many substantive policy differences between Brownites and Blairites. It was purely an argument over who should be winning the Labour Party and it was an argument in which people tended to fight dirty. But... He was quite good at a critical moment in British history. Like, it's difficult to imagine anyone else pulling off the financial crisis in quite the same way. Like, he got mocked for misspeaking and saying, well, you know, since we saved the world, when he meant the banks, but he did kind of save the world. And that's, that's a pretty big deal, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is why I say that I think the odd thing, as I said last week about Gordon Brown, is that he, I think, of all of the prime ministers in this opening set, will do the worst because of the frame we've set of judging them by the standards they themselves set for themselves. I think if it's just Gordon Brown, Prime Minister, good or bad, the leadership in the financial crisis and the fact that the central objectives of the Labour Party in terms of poverty reduction kept going, and indeed, in many ways, the validation of some of the policy uh, interventions he made as Chancellor, the way that tax credits did act as a stabiliser underneath uh, wages in the economy during the crash. This all sounds good so far. However, the problem is... is we're not judging him based on those criteria. We are judging him based on the aims of Gordon Brown. And the aims of Gordon Brown, and I think there's an interesting debate to be had about whether or not these are, were real aims of Gordon Brown or they were aims that they allowed to become their aims during their period of, of long internal combat. But was that there was a kind of 
political position to be found slightly to the left of New Labour, significantly to the right of what now leads the Labour Party, and to be more transformational than the government than he was a key part of. And, of course, in the end, that just turned out not to be the case. OK, we could bang on about this all day, but let's, let's actually speak to someone who's there. Stuart Wood is a tutor in politics at Oxford University. He was also a member of the Council of Economic Advisers when Brown was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and then an advisor to Brown when he was Prime Minister too. He was also, in 2011, ennobled as Baron Wood of Anfield. Let's talk to Stuart now. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Could you sort of first talk us through how you met Gordon for the first time and how you started working for him? I was involved just before the 97 election. A colleague of mine called David Halpin and I started a company called Nexus. Well, not a company. Essentially a network, a kind of marriage brokering agency between Labour, then in opposition, and academics. We were both young academics and we both saw this huge amount of goodwill towards Labour amongst academics. And we wanted to kind of put the two sides in touch with each other. Sadly, Nexus was the name of a makeup company. I think also <laughs> the name of a dating agency. I think we got occasional requests for brunettes. But we did Do that. Do you think for the, a... the dating agency got occasional requests for academics just I to mix it up a bit? <laughs> <laughs> Tall Glaswegian. Do you have any attractive historians? Yeah. Social policy expertise preferred, yeah. So we did that for two or three years, either side of the 97 election. And in the course of doing a lot of work for Blair and the team around Blair, we got to know a few people in the, in the Brown team. Strangely, there wasn't that much mixing between the Brown team and the Blair team, even that first term. But Ed Miliband in particular used to come along. David, his brother, invited him. And so through Ed, who I knew before, I got to know a little bit about the Brown team. And then one day Ed suggested I go in full time in late 2000, I think it was. So that's how I ended up there. And I went in full time for the 2001 election. The slight weirdness in terms of this sort of first series, mm. the, the thing that I realise separates Brown and Major from all of the others is they had prolonged cabinet careers yeah. um, beforehand. From a structural perspective, what did you feel the difference between working for Brown at the Treasury and Brown in Downing Street were? Well, I mean, it's, it's a world of difference, really. Uh, and in a funny way, I think Gordon's problems as prime minister largely stemmed not just from the length of time he spent as chancellor, but from the successes he had as chancellor. Because the kind of power you have in the Treasury is totally different from the kind of power you have as a prime minister. Uh, in the Treasury, which Gordon, remember that he was there for a decade, and people forget he was actually the most popular politician in the country for a lot of that period. It might seem like a long time ago to think that, but it was, it was definitely true. When you're Chancellor, especially during good times economically, which is how it felt for the first, you know, 10 years maybe even, when you're Chancellor, you act late and you act decisively. You have two set-piece moments a year when you prepare meticulously, you raise your head above the parapet, you have a series of pre-formulated announcements that have gone through some of the best brains in the British bureaucracy and you have a press strategy planned, and everything is done at your own pace. You may then have to deal with a fallout if it goes wrong. And then you go back into your home, and you shut the door, and you essentially just bide your time until proposals come along from other cabinet ministers, and then you have this sort of nuclear power of funding it or not funding it, or in Gordon's case, cleverly using the conditional funding of it in order to get tweaks to make it more brownite. So it's a huge power, but it, it's amenable to planning, to strategy, to patience. 
the minute you go into number 10, you are the front runner. You've got to make the running. You've got to lead with the chin in the face of uncertainty. You've got to be a source of authority, confidence across subjects. You can't just choose your subjects. You've got to be the first person who leads in the public eye on those things. And that is a totally different skill set and a totally different kind of political challenge. And I think that's the main difference. The other big difference is... It's not really thought about that much, but it's a huge issue if you're inside government. There is nothing inside number 10. Number 10 is an empty vessel. It has massive constitutional power. Number 10 and being prime minister, Lord Hailsham's famous phrase, you know, the elective dictatorship. If you have a majority, a single party majority in the British system, you can do what you like as long as you can get your party to buy it. Almost the counterweight to that is administratively, there is nothing inside number 10. There is nothing there. And you have to work with other departments to basically get what you want done, done. The Treasury, on the other hand, at that time in particular, in the 90s and the early noughties, was a huge, very powerful institution with purse strings, powers, but way more uh, administrative power than that. And I think Gordon didn't ever really get used to not having this sort of hegemonic power at his behest in, in the bureaucracy in the way he had at the Treasury once he got to number 10. Sticking on the Treasury years for a moment, do you think there was ever a conflict between Gordon Brown, the Chancellor, looking after the nation's finances, and Gordon Brown, the ambitious politician who wanted to be the next Prime Minister? And how, how would he manage that conflict? In 97, there wasn't a conflict in a funny way. I think the, the sticking to spending limits of 97, committing to Bank of England independence, coupled with the New Deal to, you know, a new, new program for the unemployed. All of that, I think, fitted the moment that Gordon became popular precisely because he was seen to understand that Labour's challenge was to make England in particular trust Labour again for the first time in 20 years. And I think his prudence with a purpose and all that, I think that was actually exactly his route both to a different kind of Labour Party and being popular, particularly amongst people who were sceptical of Labour. I think the second part of it, though, was more tricky, which was that Labour in that period did more redistribution than any, any other government in history by a country mile. And Gordon did a lot of it by stealth, no doubt about it. I think he thought that a public argument for taking away from the, those with more to give to those to less would conflict with the idea of what Labour needed to do to reinvent itself. So the minute he started that project, I think there was a tension. And I think as time wore on and Gordon felt Tony twice at least, promised to go and then didn't. And he waited and waited. I think Gordon's strategy to sort of inherit the crown, which he spent a lot of time caring about, or rather to remain the assumed successor to Tony, I think what happened was he started inheriting the grievances against Tony from all sides of the party, from the left, from people who were disappointed on Iraq. And when you inherit these conflicting kinds of grievances, your own project becomes slightly ill-defined in the minds of those people who want you to be different to what came before. And then the, the, the last problem he had was that, that he knew, I remember in 2005, just before the election 2005, he called each of us from the advisory team into his office, essentially to ask us to stay with him. And he said to me, look, I know that if I become prime minister in the next term, I'll be inheriting the fag end of new labour, that's the way he put it. He knew that New Labour had a shelf life and that, you know, it'll be 10, 12 years or whatever it would be until from 97 to when he became prime minister. Irrespective of the crash, he knew that the public's tolerance for a particular kind of governing project would start to ebb. And he felt that he wasn't going to be helped by the fact that he was coming in at the end of that, of that period of tolerance. 
it's a really interesting answer partly because it leads on to the next thing I want to ask because it feels to me at least that the claim to greatness is kind of immediately answered by the response to the financial crisis and the fact that child poverty continued to fall mm. throughout that period. However, the second part, which is renewing, whether you want to call it social democratic or centre-left Labour, or but renewing that bit of the Labour Party as a governing project was not a success. And the quality of many of the 2015 and 2010 leadership candidates, I think partly, I would argue, attests to that. Why do you think there wasn't a revival of the centre-left under, under Gordon Browning? It, it's too easy to say this, but I'll say it anyway. I think it's the crash what did it. Uh, I'm not trying to take some of the blame away from us or Team Brown, because I'm sure there are lots of things we could have done differently, and I'm happy to talk about that. But I think that the fundamental fact of that period is the crash. I mean, I think the crash changes everything for Labour. It changes everything, particularly for Gordon, who is the economic architect, if you like, of the new Labour project, because... What the crash does is just pull the rug from under the the trick that Labour pulled, which was we're going to let the economy thrive. We're not going to regulate the productive and high performing parts of the economy that much. And in return, we get the tax from you to do our public investment, our redistribution. That was the sort of Faustian deal, if you like, with the city and with the booming parts, particularly the southeast that Labour did. And after 2007, that just stops working. It just stops working. And so the entire political economy of the new Labour project just falls down. And after that, I mean, for for three years looking back, I mean, it was an incredibly stressful time from 2008 onwards. But after that, essentially, the the Brown government, I think, becomes trying to keep our heads above water. And there isn't much airspace to do anything else apart from that. So I think that the failure of the Labour project from 2010 onwards partly comes from the fact that for three years it was basically in crisis mode. And because the model of political economy that Labour had built itself on had gone. I think it's an interesting question. What would Gordon have done had there been no crash? Imagine the economy would have carried on in a pretty, pretty smooth way. In a funny way, I think it would have put him on the spot much more on something he was already on the spot on in those three or four months before the election that never was in the 2007 summer, which is, I think, the thing he was umming and ahhing about uh, in that period. And in a way, the reason he didn't call that election in 2007 was, am I a change from Tony Blair or am I the inheritor of Tony Blair? And I think Gordon could never quite work out what the balance was between those two. As Theresa May found out, if you go to the country with an election you don't need to have, you better have a damn good reason why you're going. And I think Gordon was wrestling with that issue and ultimately thought, actually, for all the TBGB tensions of the last few years, he essentially believed in the Blairite project with a few tweaks here and there. And I think, in a way, that's the interesting question. Did Gordon have a different kind of social democracy to the version that Tony had? Ultimately, it was actually had much more in common with it than it had different to it. And it was the rivalry, I think, that brought out the differences in that period before that. So there's an obvious question here. I mean, if Gordon knew he was inheriting the fag end of the Labour government, and if he couldn't work out whether or how to differ from what had gone before, what did he want it for? What was his big ambition when he got to number 10? Why did he want the job? I think he wanted it since he was a teenager, or maybe even before that, I don't know. But my guess is that these things aren't to do with the marginal difference you think you can make whenever you get the privilege to serve. I think it's more fundamental in your character than that. But no, we, when we arrived in power, we had a... I mean, people say we arrived without a plan. That's actually, in fact, the opposite of the, of the truth. We had way too detailed a plan. We had a grid for 56 days with announcements galore on it. And we had this idea we could bombard people with more than one announcement a day and... Um, slightly lost control of the press management of it, as I remember. There were lots of things Gordon wanted to do. He wanted to have a profound constitutional change. I mean, Gordon is a fan of something like a written constitution. 
He was actually a very early spotter of the resurgence of the politics of identity problem, largely through the lens of a Scot who worried about the devolution settlement and nationalism, which at the time I was slightly puzzled about why he was so obsessed by it. And I completely understand now what he was getting at. So there was that. I think he wanted a gradual shift back from the Blair public services settlement, to put it like that. I think he wanted to defend the public role and public involvement much more. Not that he would have scrapped PFI or anything like that, but I think he had a sort of more social democratic view of that by the end of his time. But no, there wasn't that much fundamentally different. Just because you don't think of yourself as a fundamental revolutionary to what came before doesn't mean that you don't think you'd be a good prime minister. And he was very aware that stylistically he wanted to be a different kind of frontman to Tony. And in the first few months, people forget that went down very well. He was very popular in the first four months, partly because it was a honeymoon period for not being like Tony at a time when people had thought, let's have something different. And the great irony of that period is that the plan we had, which had all sorts of you know, stuff on constitutional changes and things like that, ended up getting shelved because you know, events, dear boy, events started happening. Glasgow terrorist attack, blue tongue foot and mouth. And Gordon became quite a good frontman for the day-to-day crises. And in the end, that took over in that summer period. And the polls came in showing that people thought he was quite good at it. And I think that that ended up shelving some of the more long-term stuff he wanted to do. And what do you see as the mistakes that you or Team Brown or Downing Street made? Well, I think first thing is not making up our minds what kind of break we were from the Blair years. Very early on, Gordon had the the goodwill to set out the respects in which he wanted to be different, the respects in which he wanted to continue the Blair years. And I think he could have done that much more self-confidently and actually got a lot of praise for it. Not necessarily agreement within the party for everything, but I think it would have been understood. I think, secondly, the election that never was was a watershed moment. Whatever your views on whether we should have had an election or not in October 2007, letting the speculation drift on and on and on and then not doing it became emblematic of something much more than your judgment about an election it looked like it was a not just political weakness but a sense that you were prepared to play games with the question of an election for short-term gain i think that became a problem there was a real chance after the crash i think to sort of look the nation in the eye and say we need a different kind of economy this can't happen again gordon didn't take that opportunity and i think he said in his book he regrets that now Instead, we became mired in a you know, Tory cuts versus Labour cuts dispute inside the cabinet as well as in politics in general. And then the last thing is, there was actually space, I think, for more than just responding to the crash. It didn't feel like it at the time. There was an appetite, I think, for a different kind of Labour approach on issues from education to health and all sorts of things. And Gordon didn't really speak to that in those three years. If you want to motivate the social democratic troops, you ultimately have to speak to those issues. And I think Gordon had enough incredibly good form on those issues in the Treasury to launch the next phase of it. And we didn't ever do that. What do you see as the successes of that period? I I think Gordon was the most significant player in helping save not just the British economy, but the European economy and possibly wider. I really do. And I'm not alone in thinking that. People often say to me, it must have been so tough working for Gordon Brown in those years. Well, firstly, if you work for a prime minister, whatever the times, it's privilege. It's not tough, it's privilege. And secondly, in a funny way, Gordon was actually very lucky because most prime ministers don't get the issue at which they are the best people dominating during their time. But Gordon got an economic crisis. I mean, not that he relished the thought of an economic crisis. 
he, he saw it coming, by the way, in many ways. We saw something of the sort that happened coming down the pipe, not the timing particularly. But he was exactly the right person for us to have at the helm. Just for that brief period, for like those five or six months or so, he was exactly the right person. So we're talking about the financial crisis a lot. We should probably talk to an expert, someone who knows a great deal about economic policy, ideally someone from a kind of critical but semi-sympathetic perspective, maybe someone who knows a lot about debt in emerging market and the banks. And I can't really think of a better person for that than Anne Pettifor, Director of Prime, Policy Research in Macroeconomics, a fellow at the New Economics Foundation. And in 2006, she published a book with the, uh, some would have said, sensational title, The Coming First World Debt Crisis. So let's talk to Anne. Flashread goes a long way with me. And if you could kick us off by explaining the origins and the nature of the financial crisis as you would to a not particularly bright child or a very smart dog, perhaps. Well, I, I think it's, it's not complicated. It's that we deregulated the financial system, and Gordon played a part in that uh, with the Mansion House speech in which he called for. He boasted about the light-touch regulation of the Labour government. But that, combined with you know deregulation of Wall Street and so on, meant that Bankers, creditors, people who were in a position to lend crazy money. And they lent it to, basically, to whoever was willing to pay a very high rate of interest for the loan. And the higher the rate of interest, the more likely you were to get a loan. And that's why, for example, pole dancers in nightclubs in Florida didn't just have one mortgage at a variable rate. They had five. (laughs) She had five, if you remember from the wonderful big short story. Because lending to risky people, like pole dancers in, in nightclubs, meant that you could extract a larger rate of interest from that person over a shorter period of time. And then if there was a probability that she wouldn't pay, she would default, then what you could do is just take over those five properties and get your money back. The problem with that theory is that it depends on the assets that she owns remaining valuable. But in a crisis, when people all begin to flog their mortgages because they can't repay their debts, the price, the value of the asset begins to fall. And it's what happened. The crisis started on the 9th of August 2007 when bankers looked at each other and said, ha, huh, the assets that you have there as collateral for your lending, i.e., you know, the mortgages, the sovereign debts and so on, we're not sure that they're as valuable as you think they are. We don't believe the, you know, the pole dancers' properties are going to sell for the price you think they are. So because we're worried about the valuation of your assets, we've lost all confidence in your ability to repay. And that happened, you know, on the 9th of August 2007, a day that I call Detonation Day. And yet, while the banks, the central banks, the financial sector, the Financial Times all knew this was happening... The public, and including politicians, and including, I regret to say, Gordon Brown, went around saying, well, you know, this is a problem that can be fixed easily. And the public didn't think there was a problem until fully more than a year later with the collapse of Lehman's, just really through policy blundering. Lehman's was forced to go bankrupt, and that terrorised everybody. But it had been on the go, if you like, for a year, you know, this. But the reason why this is important is because it is what's happening today. I mean, what we've seen in the latest um, bubble, if you like, in bond markets, property markets and so on, is the overvaluation of assets, where people believe, for example, that London property prices are going to rise forever. And so if they park their Russian oligarch money in a property, it's safe there. 
And what we're finding is that there is an overvaluation of that. And it's this failure, if you like, of exuberant, euphoric lenders to overvalue their assets and lend crazy money against that collateral that is at the core of the crisis. To what extent was Gordon Brown to to blame for this exuberance? Because obviously one of the big political arguments that went on the next few years after this was whether it was a worldwide crisis or whether Brown personally bore a responsibility for it. I was just wondering where you stood on, on that. Well, where I stand, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Gordon because he was absolutely amazing when it came to global leadership, A, on the financial crisis and B, on debt cancellation. And he did some really, really good things with public spending. But he was conflicted, and I think his reputation is damaged by the fact that he was advised by the Treasury and indeed by his own economic advisers to treat the city respectfully and adopt what he called light-touch regulation. And it's not even respect, I think it's awe, and it's so typical of Labour governments, the awe in which they hold the City of London, the fear that exists between Labour governments and the City of London, when actually the City of London is wholly dependent on the state, as we discovered after the crisis. And I think Gordon went along with that. And so I don't think he can be blamed, because actually the forces driving deregulation were in place when he became Chancellor. They were very fashionable. The economics profession wholly endorsed them. I mean, it would have been very hard to get counter-advice if you were a chancellor against the liberalisation of the financial sector from any senior economist in the world. The IMF, the World Bank and Wall Street, of course, and the, the US Treasury were all pursuing this. And in fact, you know, while Britain is terribly important in the global financial system, we're not as important as Wall Street is. So I, I think he's to blame, but only insofar as all Labour governments have adopted this attitude of deference to the City of London, deference to the prudent chancellorship thesis. So he begins his first two years as a chancellor by absolutely reinforcing the conservative notion that government spending has to be curtailed. Government spending is the cause of all the problems and it has to be. So he adopts the Tory fiscal restraints. And by doing that, he reinforces this, in my view, totally flawed theory, which blows up when the crisis happens because, hey, presto, overnight, the Treasury and the Bank of England, between them, find a thousand billion quid to bail out the banks. And, you know, where did that money come from? (laughs) So I, you know, I'm conflicted on the question, but I don't think it's fair to lay the blame for the global financial crisis on him. But he certainly played along for too long and should have spoken out before. Did Labour overspend during the good times? I think that's hugely exaggerated. Gordon had given himself a straitjacket, you know, the spending within the cycle. He'd imposed the kind of fiscal rules that Milton Friedman back in 1948 had urged all governments to embark on. And he found himself sometimes uh, exceeding those rules. But I would say that What Gordon did was to begin to reinvest in the human infrastructure, Sure Start, all the various public expenditures that he undertook helped to repair that bit of our economy, which is extremely important for the health of the overall economy. So I don't think he overspent. I think that's typical Tory criticism of a Labour government. And it's unfortunately the kind of criticism that Labour chancellors are very, very sensitive to. Instead of 
challenging that ideology, they sort of, you know, capitulate to it. In terms of the leadership you talked about internationally, firstly, if you could, again, describe for us what the global response to that crisis was and how important do you think Gordon Brown was or wasn't to it? Well, I was around in the crowd, if you like, at the 2009 summit that he convened, and he was absolutely right. And forward-thinking and acting as a true leader at a point when actually there weren't many others in the world in saying that the world had to coordinate its response. And the reason why the world had to coordinate response was because global finance at that time and today is a global market. It's beyond the reach of domestic policymaking. Uh, it's beyond the reach of democratic regulatory policymaking. It's out there in the stratosphere, and it requires governments to work together to address it. And Gordon understood that. But unfortunately, governments had stripped themselves, if you like, of the policy tools needed to address it, including this deep conservatism about government spending. So it was okay to bowl out the banks, but it was not okay to spend into the real economy to protect those who were hurt by the crisis. And Alistair Darling was, you know, absolutely moulded in that tradition. And so we all know there was a conflict between him and Gordon over government spending at a time when the economy was collapsing and when absolutely the private sector had lost confidence, the private sector was freezing up, not lending, the banks weren't lending, the private sector wasn't investing. Everyone in the private sector was, as Mariana Matsukata always reminds us, as timid as a mouse in the face of a big bad cat. And that is the point at which the government has to be the big bad cat, has to be the roaring lion, as Mariana says. And Alistair couldn't rise to that. And there was conflict between the two of them. And I think on the point of the need for government to step in at that point, Gordon was right and Alistair was wrong. But by that time, I think the relationships had been damaged. In terms of the kind of aftermath slash ongoing, yeah, whether we are post-crisis is itself a kind of open question. Yes. How do you think the decisions he took and the leadership he had from sort of 2008 to 2010 will be seen in hindsight? Well, I think he'll be seen to have played a pivotal role in the world and in a, in a way that no other Western politician did. Unfortunately, what really needed to happen was that the financial sector had to be restructured. It had to be re-regulated and subordinated to the interests of the real economy. And that didn't happen. So what we were trying to do was to fix this flawed system with a bit of government spending, not too much, Alistair said, and with an attempt to bail out the banks and prevent... I mean, there was a moment when we knew, and Gordon and Alistair knew, that, that weekend that is described as the long weekend, that on the Monday morning... ATM machines weren't going to open because banks were collapsing after layman's. That was a terrifying moment. And to have stabilised the system after that was heroic. And I think Gordon will be remembered for that. The question is, it's not enough to stabilise the system. The need was to have redesigned the system to prevent such a thing happening again. And of course, that did not happen. Because the Labour Party, the Labour government, Gordon, and all of the Treasury, of course, are wedded to the notion that the financial system must be left to operate within the free market system. Because he was wedded to that, it didn't occur to him that the further step had to be taken. And if further steps had to be taken, Gordon would have come across huge resistance. And I'm not underestimating that. Do you think anyone could have played that role? 
Well, do you know, I look back at Roosevelt in 1933, and he played that role. You know, he becomes president in 1933, four years after the crisis. You know, the public then was as stunned as we all were after 2008. And Roosevelt, the first thing he does, he calls in the banks and he says, I'm closing you down on Monday. We're going to have a bank holiday, as they called it. And furthermore, at that moment, the world's most senior economists, the most senior treasury officials, plan to convene a global conference to restore the gold standard. And the bankers, of course, were dead keen on restoring the gold standard because the gold standard had been designed to suit the interests of a liberalized financial system. And Roosevelt said, F off, you know, he refused to attend. And by that refusal, he collapsed the whole gold standard ideology. And he began to restructure the financial system in the United States. And he began to spend like there was no tomorrow and restore employment. And he was the most popular president in the American history. So, yes, it can be done. Now, Roosevelt had Keynes and he had, you know, progressive advisors. He was also an aristocrat. He wasn't frightened of Wall Street. He defeated a Wall Street Democrat in the primaries. Uh, he wasn't in awe of them. Labour governments tend to be too um, deferential. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Stuart, some people say that New Labour were too in awe of the world of finance. Others say that the financial crisis was really the making of Gordon Brown as Prime Minister, that there could have been no leader better suited to that moment. What do you think? I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you a small story of why he was the right person. There was a Tuesday when, in October 2008 when everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, we were being told there's a decent chance of there being troops on the streets to stop people taking money out of the banks. There's all sorts of rumours and scenarios flying around. And Gordon was preparing for PMQs in the cabinet room. And a private secretary kept coming in saying, RBS is going to go to the wall unless you give them the, the multi-billion bailout. And he kept putting them off, kept putting them off. And they kept coming back in saying the phone's still ringing. And about 5.36 o'clock, he said to the private secretary, well, we will bail them out and we'll do it tomorrow morning at 7 because if you do it and bail out at 6 o'clock at night, it's panic. And if you do it at 7 o'clock in the morning, it's strategy. And it seems like a small thing, but it's absolutely right. And indeed, the markets had a mini spike and it wasn't the thing that sorted things out, but it helped. And that sort of judgment, he was fantastic at. Judgments and other things, I concede, you know, he didn't get right. But so on that set of things, I think he was exactly the right person. And one other thing, I think Gordon actually came quite near to pulling off an extraordinary result in 2010. It's sort of it's weird to say now because looking back, you know, he's just the guy who had the crash and then lost. But 
he actually was making a comeback in the last couple of weeks of that campaign. And he had a very audacious plan in the five days of coalition to to try and see off the Tories. He, he wasn't naive. He knew it wasn't going to be a stable government, but he had this plan. And if against the odds, he could have hung on and split the Tories in 2010, which wasn't that far off in the end. I think we would be thinking of him politically as quite a different kind of prime minister. My memory of that period is just this sort of feeling of whiplash because there are a couple of times as you say it's forgotten now but like very early on he was seen as hugely refreshing and then the change in tone from Tony Blair and that kind of faded in October 2007 but then like as I recall in the summer of 2008 there was quite a lot of positivity around well at least it's Gordon Brown who's in charge in this and he just his, his popularity kind of kept bouncing up and down like did it feel like that from yes. the inside yes the first four months from what is it June 2007 to October we were riding high and it felt like we were succeeding and it, it felt like Gordon had touch from October 2007 to late summer 2008 it was it was horrible everything went wrong expenses everything seemed to just pile in against us day after day it felt you know oppressive and then it pinged back again as you say and Gordon was you know being invited to Eurozone meetings to chair them and you know being clapped into rooms in international meetings and hailed by Obama and it was just a different kind of game and then it flipped back again. But I think there was that period just after the G20 summit when we had a chance to grab the reins and say, this is what Labour should now be about. In that period, did it feel like a fourth term was, was attainable? And did it feel like it was a good idea? <laughs> it always felt like a very long shot. And, you know, it was a restless time within the party, to put it mildly, James Pennell resigning and Curry House plots and all that sort of thing. None of which ever came near to deposing Gordon. But it felt like the party wasn't with him until it came to the run-up to the election. Then actually people got behind him again. But did it feel like a fourth term was a good idea? It did. I did because I think, I mean, Gordon was really quite obsessed with the idea that if the Tories got in, they could be in for a very long time. And secondly, that it would involve a fundamental rupture in our relationship with Europe. He, he genuinely thought that was the big danger. But you could say, to be self-critical, well, if that's what you thought, you should have come up with a better alternative for the 2010 election that's probably true the 2010 election looked a bit like more of the same treading water expecting people to see that threat in the Tory propositions and I don't think the country did see that way I broadly agree it feels looking back then there were some important disagreements about the public realm and procurement there were some important differences about the euro yeah. but given the incredibly vicious internal battles between Blairites and Brownites was the kind of combat and characterised, I suppose, not just 1994 to 2010, but arguably 1994 all the way up to parts of you know, kind of maybe 2013, yeah. worth it. I mean, I don't think this was the reason for that tension, but one of the one of the functions that that tension between Blair and Brown served in the 97-2007 period was it brought in people across the party for a Blair project that was actually quite controversial inside the party. People who were worried that Tony was a sort of managerial centrist who didn't really have the project of the Labour Party at heart. Whatever you think of that criticism, there were definitely people in the party who thought that. And Gordon subscribing to the Blair project, but with reservations and carping at the sides, actually pulled a lot of those people in. Again, I'm not justifying it. He, he did it for other reasons. He did it, I think, because partly because he would had genuine disagreements and partly because of, uh, because of ambition, I think. So in a funny way, the tension between them had the effect of bringing the majority of the party along uh, when otherwise it might have had a, you might have had a split, I think. 
Was it worth it? Yeah, I think it was worth it. I think it was worth it. Do you think history will be kinder than many contemporary commentators have been? I think history will focus on three or four things about Gordon in a way that they won't with Blair. I think that, well, with Blair, they'll focus on one thing, particularly the Iraq war, unkindly, probably, and probably Northern Ireland in, on the other side. And on Gordon, I think they'll focus on the Bank of England and the crash and the Euro. Those are the things I think that he will be remembered for. And I suspect that those three things will be remembered quite positively by people on all sides of the political spectrum in the future. So Margaret Hodge made this point. Strangely enough, she spoke as a Blairite, but the things that stick in people's mind about Gordon, strangely, the events, I should say, reflect very well on him. I think the thing that will, people will think about Gordon is that he just wasn't very good as a frontman. He wasn't cut for it. He didn't have the charisma. That will be the, the memory of Gordon. And, and it will be the exact opposite of Tony, that he was a great politician, he was a great frontman. But in terms of events and achievements, I suspect Gordon might well get a better, the better end of the deal, whatever your view of whether that's fair or not. OK, so we've spoken to our experts. Stephen, have we changed our minds? I think I have uh, a bit. I mean, obviously, the slightly weird thing is in my... Uh other life or my day job when we're not doing this podcast of course i cover the fate of the country and also the internal battles within the labor party where of course part of the dynamic i talked about when we started this was it is very hard to defend a political approach which led to the complete loss of control by uh, his entire faction over these teeny tiny ideological differences i think for the blair brown TB, for the TBGBs to be worth it, right? You you have to be able to go, oh, right, there was a breach. And in an odd way, both sides have got a vested interest in arguing there was, right? So Tony Blair goes, oh, it was 10 years plus three. But the reality is that's just not true, right? The 13 years had incredible policy continuity, and it is essentially quite difficult to, to argue that, that that internal battle was worth the amount of damage both sides suffered to their own political aims. Shouldn't underplay the super casinos, mate. That was a pretty big deal. But, you know, super casinos aside, and obviously, you know, kind of our conversations with Stuart sort of, I think, underlined that. But equally, and I'm aware that this means that two episodes in, I'm going, I'm going to slightly upend the entirely arbitrary set of rules I set for ourselves. But although I think the, the rules are a good kind of starting point, it just feels crazy to say that a social democratic prime minister the architect of much of the economics which underpinned the whole 13 year period the longest period of non-conservative government uh, since the 18th century the longest period of social democratic government perhaps ever in british history most redistributed government yeah real terms child poverty falling during the crisis huge leadership in crisis it just feels crazy to go that's a bad labor prime minister just because his own aims for himself were weren't very much above that. Also, because the thing I found it harder and harder to resist thinking during these interviews is ultimately they actually, everyone involved secretly kind of knew that the policy divide didn't exist. So in an odd way, going he actually wanted to achieve something to the left of Blair. No, he didn't. There were people at the margins of the Brown Project who who believed that, but I don't think that you can really say, as I did at the start, that the failure to offer discontinuity is a real failure. So I would say I've uh, come into with a significantly higher opinion of him as a prime minister, both on mine and his terms. Okay, well, here's some nice symmetry. I think my opinion's actually gone down. Oh. Because it's all the stuff Anne was saying about 
FDR. Like FDR is is one of my favourite politicians. I literally have a mug with FDR on. Thank you, thank you, Helen, for that present. And and Gordon Brown didn't do that. He didn't manage to radically shift the debate. And the story of the last eight years is basically one of all New Labour's economic achievements being systematically dismantled by a Conservative Party that's not even in that strong a position electorally. He did not manage to entrench this sort of new approach to public finances or public services. It all instantly went wrong. So maybe I was just being nostalgic about a period when we had a Labour government and, let's be honest, a period when I was still relatively young. So what you're saying is don't look back in anger. That was 1995. I was five then. I don't know when that song's from. Yeah, but it's, like, it's, it's the from wrong, the past. It's the wrong decade. Well, okay, in that case you're saying, what's an Oasis song from, from the, the late noughties? Helpfully enough, we will be talking about the era of Britpop next time. You guessed it. It's time for Blair. You've been listening to Prime Ministerial with me, Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman. And me, John Elledge, author of The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. With special thanks to Caroline Crampton and Nick Hilton. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.